Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Over 250,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 22nd episode, our guest is Jeff Smith. But before we get to that, I need to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor. For you, the listeners of the Rob Burgess Show podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. A book I would personally recommend, which pertains to this episode, is Mr. Smith Goes to Prison, What My Year Behind Bars Taught Me About America's Prison Crisis, written and read by today's guest, Jeff Smith. Whatever book you pick, you can exchange it at any time, you can cancel at any time, and the books are yours to keep. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show for your free audiobook. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available. Whether it's iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, or RSS, you can find links to everything on the official website, www.therobburgessshow.com. You can also find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Back to today's show. Jeff Smith starred in the 2006 documentary, Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore?, and was a Missouri state senator from 2007 to 2009, representing the city of St. Louis. After serving a year-long sentence at FCI Manchester for obstruction of justice, he then worked as an assistant professor at the New School's Milano School of International Affairs, Management, and Urban Planning. He is the author of Mr. Smith Goes to Prison, What My Year Behind Bars Taught Me About America's Prison Crisis, and Ferguson in Black and White, an ebook exploring the roots of the racial tension in Ferguson, Missouri. He is now the Executive Vice President at Concordance Academy of Leadership, which is dedicated to reducing reincarceration by providing evidence-based, holistic services to justice-involved adults returning to the community after prison. You can follow him on on Twitter at Jeff Smith M O that's J E F F S M I T H capital M capital O and now on to the show This is Jeff Hey Jeff it's Rob Hey Rob how's it going Good how are you man I'm good I'm good Oh good I'm glad we finally got to talk here this is this is very exciting Yeah Thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it. No problem, man. Uh, well, just b- before we get going here, just let people know whatever you want them to know about you. 
So I'm Jeff Smith, and I used to be a political rising star. <laughs> no longer. Now I'm uh, the executive vice president uh, at Concordance Academy, a new reentry organization in St. Louis that aspires to be the most comprehensive organization in the world, serving people coming out of prison. Now you're from St. Louis. Uh I've only been through St. Louis, and of course, I wrote I wrote a lot about uh, the Ferguson situation that happened. Um, just kind of give people a lay of the land of of St. Louis for those of us who who didn't grow up there. Okay, so as a lot of people know who followed the Ferguson. Uh, situation. It's one of the most segregated cities in the country. Um, A lot of that stems from the divide between the city and the county. Um, St. Louis City split off from St. Louis County in 1876. And uh, actually, the population of St. Louis City, it was once the fourth largest city in the country, uh, but has lost about two-thirds of its population, um, nearly two-thirds of its population in the last half century. So, uh, about the same percentage that Detroit has lost. So the city itself has suffered a great deal. Um, The county uh, has grown some, but uh, the metropolitan area as a whole has um, kind of stagnated over the last few decades. So it's a city that's uh, lost a lot of jobs in the wake of deindustrialization. It used to be the second largest maker of cars in the world, uh, and and that also is is not true anymore. So um, it's a city that uh, I think has a lot of potential. It's got the bones of a world-class city because it was once one of the biggest cities in the country. Beautiful architecture, beautiful museums, and gorgeous parks. Uh, And hopefully... um, I will be a part of, you know, kind of the nascent revitalization of, of the, uh, the city. Right, right. And uh, I just finished watching the, the documentary uh, that you were the star of, Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? Um, actually just finished that today, and I just finished the book today, so I've actually been thinking oh, about wow. you a lot. So, <laughs> um, so, so you know a hell of yeah. a lot more about me than I know about you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a, a journalist. I live in Kokomo, Indiana. Uh, have this podcast, obviously. Uh, anything else you want to know, you can ask me. <laughs> um, so uh, I almost think you should sell that documentary as a two-pack with the book, because that's actually, I just as soon as I read the book, I was like, okay, I, I got to see this movie now, because you were describing all the all the people in it. Uh, and you do get to see a little bit of St. Louis in that documentary. Um, so how did you a feel? lot of yeah. St. Louis. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. every day uh, during both my congressional race and my state senate race, I canvassed every single day. That was something that we did not compromise on. Uh, no matter what was else, what else was going on in the race, uh, we wanted to kind of stay in touch with, with you know, people at the doors and, and what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And uh, it was my favorite part of the campaign. You can, I think, probably tell that when you watch the, the film, how much I, I loved that. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, we... You know, um, that really, my first campaign in particular, um, we didn't really have any other way to get known uh, because I was a total unknown running against the son of the governor. Uh, his dad was governor. His mother was a U.S. senator. And so he was, you know, had essentially universal name identification, and I started with almost none. Uh, and so the doors were really the, the critical way to, to spread the word um, in, in that race. 
Yeah, yeah. In in that race, uh, as the movie shows, you are kind of going up against a uh, establishment uh, that is pretty entrenched uh, in in the Carnahan name. Um, just tell people who don't know how big the Carnahan name is in uh, Missouri. I mean, well, it's, as, it's a powerhouse, as, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as the kind of leading political scientist who follows elections here in St. Louis said in the film, the, the Carnahans are to Missouri like the Kennedys are to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the leading political dynasty. And the scion of that dynasty back in 2004 was Russ Carnahan, uh, my opponent. So, you know, he, um, in our first poll, yeah, he had 99% name ID. Uh, I had 3% name ID. Um, so we, we started a, a long way behind. But I had these amazing volunteers. I know it's kind of a cliche at this point to say you ran a grassroots campaign. But um, before we could raise any money, we uh, put together several hundred volunteers, ultimately 700 people, um, most of whom went canvassing for us uh, day in, day out. And, you know, conversely, Carnahan didn't really have any uh, grassroots organization at all, but uh, and and so that really was what distinguished us every day. Uh, our campaign became known by the fact that we would jog between doors. It was something I did instinctively just to want to hit more doors, and I started doing it. And then my body guy who walked with me, of course, had to do it. And then my intern started doing it. And then once the interns started doing it, when they canvassed with me, they spread it to the volunteers, and it sort of became the uh, sort of a trademark for us. And I think it highlighted kind of the energy that that I hope to bring to, to representing the district. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I mean, you came so close in the end, right? It was like 1,500 votes, is that right? Yeah, it was about uh, just a little bit more than 1%. Wow. And, yeah, and he, ten, yeah, he didn't ten, even win ten, a single ten. place, right? He just won, he came in second and third, and through somehow he still won, through just massing all those votes? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a 10-way primary, and you're right. He didn't win in any uh, section of the district, but he ran second pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so even though I won St. Louis City comfortably, I won St. Louis County, I lost by so much in the rural section of the district that uh, it enabled Carnahan to, to kind of slide by me at the end of the night uh, around 3 or 4 a.m. Uh, if you watch the documentary. Right, right. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of tension with uh, the local media as far as uh, the coverage of your campaign, uh, especially, I'm, I'm going to say, the editorial boards seem to not come out for you. Um, what, what do you make of that? Just because they, they know the Carnahan situation better, so it's like uh, maybe they can win easier I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was I, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, which is the main paper in the mm-hmm. city. They got angry, uh, not angry, but um, um, they thought I was over the top. Was was their exact quote? Because it was 2003, 2004. I thought the war in Iraq was was an abomination, and right. I said so. You know, every day at the top of my lungs that uh, we needed to get our troops out immediately. That mm-hmm. was. Uh, in direct contrast to the views of our congressman at the time, Congressman Dick Gephardt, who was a staunch supporter of that war, walked out in the Rose Garden with, with President Bush. And uh, so I took issue with that, and, and that kind of got me crossways with a lot of the big you know, opinion makers in, in the city at that point. Since then, of course, a lot of people have kind of come around to the view that Iraq was, was a misguided war. But at that point, um, you know, it, it particularly because of Congressman Gephardt's support of it, feelings were pretty mixed uh, at that point. 
Yeah, and I think people forget just how radical a statement that, that was in that time because there was such, you know, uh, a, f- a fever of, of war in the air and people were just, you know, chomping at the bit. And, you know, it was it was a really scary time in a lot of ways. But it's funny that uh, both Hillary Clinton now and Donald Trump are both running away from any support of the Iraq war when at the time it was like your your position was was not the, you know, it was it seemed it seemed like, you know, I, I see people in the film kind of taken aghast that you're saying these like he's too wild saying these things. But now, like, uh, that's the mainstream view. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a bad I, yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. So, you know, there were two main papers in the in the city. One of them was Post-Dispatch, the mainstream paper. Uh, and then we have a, a, a very um, highly regarded and award-winning black newspaper called the St. Louis American. Um, with that paper, I was told by the publisher I was very close to getting their endorsement. He said they were 98% sure they were going to do it. But then at the last second, mm-hmm. a group of uh, African-American politicians in the area, who many of whom had been appointed to, to different positions or had allies who had received judicial appointments or other appointments from Carnahan's father when he had been governor, mm. decided to push uh, for the paper to endorse Carnahan. And so they reversed themselves at the last moment and mm. uh, decided not to endorse me. So you're right. Uh, losing both of those endorsements, um, you know, definitely was, uh, I think, uh, uh, an inflection point, you know, uh, kind of against me in, in the race. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you can't help, I mean, being so close, if it was a blowout, you know, it doesn't even really matter. But, I mean, it's it was so close that it's like... Anytime, anytime you lose by 1%, yeah. you can point to almost anything. <laughs> right, that exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, uh, you, you narrowly lost that. Now... Citizens United hadn't happened yet. Um, Correct. And we see, you know, it locally here in Indiana, you know, of course, we've, we've seen before Governor Pence joined the Trump ticket, he got his most significant, co- you know, you know, donations from this, this big money uh, situation that we have now in, in campaign finance. Do you think the scenario of the grassroots person is more or less likely now than it was when, when you ran for the seat? Well, I think now, uh, really, um, in particular on the Democratic side, uh, but I think to some extent on the Republican side, we've seen the rise of grassroots donors uh, that that have really kind of risen up, you know, thanks to the the uh, instant nature of online fundraising to show that if you have, if you can get like Bernie Sanders did, you know, millions of people excited about your campaign, it's possible to raise money in, you know, small dollar contributions. And uh, so I actually think the advent of, of uh, you know, a, a lot of the, um, you know, technology around politics has made it a little bit easier for candidates to uh, to spread the word about their race and raise money. You know, we didn't have Twitter uh, when I was running, and and Facebook was limited to like Harvard and and Yale maybe. But uh, you know, we um, we were just beginning to do a little bit of online fundraising using email, but we didn't have most of the tools at our disposal. So while I think Citizens United. Uh, and free speech now, both Supreme Court decisions have definitely facilitated the ability of mega wealthy people, you know, billionaires to to influence races. 
Um, the response to that from grassroots donors around the country has been pretty encouraging. And I think the Sanders campaign uh, showed that there it's possible to raise as much as the, uh, you know, as the establishment candidates that are backed by the billionaires mm-hmm. if, you, if you can truly mobilize the masses. Right, right. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the um, congressman who was uh, primaried, who was like the number two, Eric Cantor. Eric Cantor, um, yeah. Right, He's so that, he totally got usurped uh, uh, in the primary because he had an upstart Tea Party candidate. And he was the number two guy in the House, right? I mean, he was... Yeah, I mean, he had a, he had a couple million dollars, and he lost to a guy, you know, right. who barely had any money at all, mm-hmm. but who had, uh, you know, a couple issues against him and, and you know, a, a grassroots following. So I think that um, it's easier, yes, you know, the cynics would say it's easier than ever to to pump up, you know, millions of dollars of dark money into a campaign, you know, using the kind of sketchy parts of the tax code, these like 501c4s, you know, mm-hmm. to, uh, to disguise the sources of money and then funnel them into, into races without any accountability or transparency. On the other hand, it's also easier than ever to use social media to spread the word about a race and to mobilize people to both canvas, you know, make phone calls and also contribute. So, um, I'm opt, you know, I'm actually optimistic. I think this year, you know, we saw the establishment, uh, be seriously threatened on the Democratic side because of the Sanders movement and be taken down on the Republican side, despite the fact that Jeb Bush had raised $100 million from, you know, the the 1% in this country. So I think it was kind of actually an encouraging year mm-hmm. uh, so far for people who um, are opposed to just, you know, the, the special interests. So you, so you, uh, you narrowly lost that to Russ Carnahan, um, but give us a rundown of what happened uh, in that campaign uh, that, that got you into trouble. Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to do it in 60 seconds. It was about three weeks from the end of my congressional campaign, and a guy approached two of my aides. He told them that he wanted to put out a postcard highlighting my opponent, Mr. Carnahan's dismal attendance record in the State House of Representatives. And my aides came to me and said, what should we do? This guy wants to put out a flyer about Carnahan's attendance record, but he doesn't know all the details about it. Should we give him that information? And I knew the information was publicly available, but I didn't really think through the consequences. And uh, so I said to my aides, look, I don't want to know what you do. Just don't tell me any details, which was basically telling them, yeah, make sure the guy gets the information. And so they did. A couple weeks later, I didn't think this third-party guy was going to actually do anything. He billed himself as a practitioner of the political dark arts. Who would kind of, He was kind of a shady guy. But I didn't think he was actually going to put out any postcard. So I called a press conference on the steps of the federal courthouse and said, Russ Carnahan, my opponent's a nice and decent man from a wonderful political family, but the guy doesn't show up for work, so we shouldn't vote for him. The next day, the the shady practitioner of the dark arts puts out a postcard saying the exact things that I had said the day before publicly. And he had used the information that he had gotten from my two aides to put out uh, that postcard. Now, it was all factual, 
and it was all publicly available information, but he received it from my aides, which constituted a legal coordination under the McCain-Feingold you know, campaign finance reform statute. A few days later, I lose the election by 1%. Carnahan files a complaint against me with the Federal Election Commission, alleging that there was a legal coordination between my campaign and the third party. And I signed an affidavit saying I didn't have any advanced knowledge of that postcard, which wasn't true because I knew that my aides had met with the guy who I figured probably put it out. I justified that to myself by saying that I told my aides not to tell me any details, but uh, five years later, my best friend wore a wire for two months and got me to admit that this rationalization wasn't true. And so when the feds uh, closed in on me, um, basically I had a choice of, you know, if I would have worn a wire on people higher on the food chain than me, that was really my only chance to stay out of prison. I decided not to do that and was ultimately sentenced to a year and a day in federal prison for obstruction of justice, stemming from that, uh, from covering up that original campaign finance violation. Yeah, yeah, and as you describe in the book, um, there is you, you then ran, we should say, for a later seat, which you then won uh, in the Missouri State Senate, right? Yes. Okay, so you did eventually get into to office, but this followed you around from... It from followed the, me around for five years. Wow. And I served in the Senate for three years, had a, you know, I loved every minute of it, had a wonderful tenure, was able to to, you know, pass a lot of legislation, ironically enough, around criminal justice reform, uh, which was a passion of mine, and then uh, never really anticipated just how intimately acquainted I would become with the criminal justice system. Right, right. Um, But you describe in the campaign to get that seat where somebody that was running against you did something very similar to what you did, but nothing came of it because you didn't file a complaint. Is that right? That happened in both my campaigns. Oh, yeah. wow. In both my campaigns, my opponents, uh, one of them, they constantly uh, insinuated that I was gay and had postcards screaming, Jeff Smith won't be straight with us mm. uh, because I was single at that point. And then in a second campaign, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitic material put out uh postcards that had a star of David mm. and a picture and uh, that said, who will Jeff Smith really represent, North St. Louis or Israel? <laughs> wow. Those are sheriff stars. Don't worry about it. Um. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but, you know, but I, yeah, I mean, I just, it just kind of wasn't my, um, yeah, I never filed an FEC complaint, so there, was, there wasn't really any action uh, about the other ones, even though they also lacked, uh, just as the postcard that was put out in coordination with my campaign, um, lacked that requisite paid for by disclaimer on bottom. Wow. Yeah, it just seems like something that happens all the time in uh, in, in in campaigns, um, and uh, you know, it, it just seems like you the, it somehow fell onto you. Uh, you seem to think that people that were in the in the government or whatever that were going after you kind of wanted to you you called it kind of headhunting. I think you know they wanted to go after somebody big, you know, like somebody that was public. So you you had been in a movie, you were in the Senate, you know. You were a very visible person. Do you think that they just wanted to make an example of you because you were who you were? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was part of it. Prosecutors are human like anyone else, and many of them are very ambitious. And, uh, you know, it, to the extent that, that uh, landing a bigger scalp helps them advance and, and gain prominence, I think a lot of prosecutors are um, uh, susceptible to that to that instinct. So, um, look, I made a mistake. I screwed up, and... Uh, uh, and I paid the price for it. But um, the incentive structures for, for prosecutors in this country, many of whom, um, you know, are are interested in taking down a big fish, uh, is something that I think we should all uh, pay a little more attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You were sent to prison for, for a year, right? But you got good time for... You know, every how does it work? You, you get a day for a you day, do or you do eighty-five percent, eighty-five percent federal system. So you can get fifteen percent of your time taken off, as long as you don't get in any fights or you know do anything, right? Uh, any egregious misbehavior? For sure, for sure. Um, so uh, you have this great scene near the beginning of your time in prison uh, where this one prisoner named Cornbread confronts you. Um, I just want to read from the book real quick because it, it just made me laugh so hard. You were sitting with people that were not of your race at a at a lunch table, right? Correct. And then this, this person named Cornbread basically calls you an N-word lover. Um, and then you said, uh, no, I said, figuring it wasn't the opportune time to reveal my African-American studies paper. <laughs> <laughs> that that made me chuckle, but um, but um, but that's something that that struck me right away, and it, I've always kind of thought about because I'm not a racist, but I always hear that that prison is is such a racially segregated place, and whether you like it or not, you have to, as you say, ride in your car or whatever with with people that are of your own race. For the most part, there are exceptions, of course, as you say. Um, yeah, you're somebody that has gone out of your way to reach out to the black community. I mean, that's that's true up and down. Like you're 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 in the, probably the one percent of of people that have that have tried to to reach across racial barriers. And here you are in a place that is more racially segregated than than anywhere. How how was how did you deal with that? I mean, how did you ju- justify that in your mind? I mean, it was survival. I'm sure on a certain level, but. Yeah, no, it was definitely challenging. Um, as you said, so I'm a white guy. I was a black history major in college and then uh, represented, you know, started a group of charter schools that were um, almost almost uh, 100% black and was very active uh, in the black community and a lot of, sort of my community service and then ultimately represented a majority black state senate district. And so I was very interested in... in you know, racial justice and, and causes that were uh, important, you know, to St. Louis' black community, which, as everybody understands, after Ferguson has suffered a great deal from from historical discrimination in, in this area. So, yeah, it was, it was not easy to go to prison and have such a stark line divide whites from blacks uh, at the, at the uh, table in the chow hall and really in, in the entire, you know, on the weight pile, you know, when people are working out, uh, on the yard, prison is, is probably the most segregated part of, of America. So as you read from, you know, in the scene that you read from the book, you know, uh, I w- was kind of in for a rude awakening. I sat at the lunch table with, uh, 
black guys who who uh, were in my cell block uh, my first day and and received uh, a, a warning from kind of the white you know shot caller if you will uh, who warned me that uh, uh, if I did that it was not going to be taken well by the uh, white gang members um, at the prison so in any case um, tried to kind of navigate that uh, for over the course of, of my year in prison and thankfully um, was able to do it without uh, getting crossways with with too many people sure yeah there's a, there's another scene that you <laughs> um, encounter some uh, a white guy with his shirt off and he has a B on his chest and you're like oh anheuser Bush I'm from st. Louis and he's like no Aryan bro <laughs> it's like, oh my <laughs> what, what he actually yeah what he said was uh, he said welcome home brother and when I saw the the ad I, I naturally thought oh anheuser Bush he must be from st. Louis and, yeah no uh, uh, the um, units where where people lived were very segregated, and uh, at first I was part of the only interracial cell mm. um, at Manchester SCI, but uh, ended up getting into a little bit of a uh, scrape with my celly mm. and uh, had had to move. I see. Yeah. Um, now speaking of segregation, uh, segregated housing uh, or the shoe or solitary, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know that I, I watched. I think I think you mentioned this documentary in the book, but there's a, a National Geographic documentary about um, solitary confinement. Um, that's the one you mentioned, right? I believe. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I saw that years ago, and that blew my mind. It just seems like so. I mean, if we're talking about cruel and unusual, that is the definition of cruel and unusual. And and people become more impulsive and more self-destructive. And of course, they do because if you hold people, you know, off to like that with you know, it's psychological torture. So, I mean, just explain uh, the shoe for people that that don't know what we're talking about. Well, the shoe is is uh, a key tool for social control um, from the prison's perspective. If anybody you know misbehaves seriously, if they get caught stealing, if they get in a fight, um, if they get caught uh, with contraband or, or a shank uh, or a cell phone, you know, anything like that, then the prison will send them to the shoe for anywhere from a few weeks to uh, to several years. And, you know, a lot of people live most of their life in prison, you know, some people decades even in solitary confinement. This was first tried by the Quakers uh, in Philadelphia in one of the early American prisons, and the Quakers realized they originally thought it would be a way for people to um, to sort of express penitence, you know, to be by themselves and think about what they had done wrong. But what they found is that it actually drove people crazy to completely lack human contact for years on end. And, and those findings, uh, those early findings have been corroborated uh, since then. We now know that solitary is uh, very deleterious to to um, to people who are uh, uh, and, and, and any attempt to rehabilitate them, and yet um, we do it throughout the country, uh, even to people in their formative years when it's most damaging to uh, psychosocial development. So it's a big problem. Uh, it's something I saw a lot of at, at Manchester FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, but I'm sure you've heard of it, but the uh, Mother Jones uh, reporter who sure. went undercover, yeah. Yep. Um, have you read that? Uh, piece. Yep, I have. Okay, what do you what do you think of that? Was that uh, true to your experiences? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think it it, it generally was. Uh, solitary is again um, 
people are, are miserable in there and people will, you know, one example I talk about in the book is someone who, uh, uh, stops up their toilet, you know, and floods their own cell. Think about how miserable you have to be and how angry you have to be at the guards to flood your own cell with human feces just to try to make them clean it up. Uh, when in reality, they're not going to clean it up. They're just going to assign a bunch of inmates to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the misery, uh, in, the human misery in solitary is indescribable, and the long-term damage that, that it wreaks on, on people's mental health uh, is, is uh, vast. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing that seems so cruel to me is that they don't even give, they don't even give you things to write on or, or any books or anything, right? Um, in solitary, where we were, once a week, they would bring by a uh, like a mobile library with maybe twenty books, and uh, I think you were allowed like one book a week. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that was, uh, and I think you could have one pencil that was like an inch long and one sheet of paper. Mm. Yeah, that right there would drive you crazy. I mean, if you, if you had all day to read, I could probably read more than one book a week. Um, I'm sure I'm sure you you read a lot more in prison than you had before. <laughs> I did read a lot. I had a, you know I had a full time job, which most uh-huh. people in prison do. You got to work forty hours a week. I worked in a work on a loading dock mm-hmm. uh, with some other guys. We moved all the food that came into uh, into the compound that fed about twenty five hundred prisoners on uh, at two prisons in Manchester. So mm-hmm. um, it was, uh, you know, it was hard work, but at least it was something to do all day. Yeah, it just, but this goes back to you being, I, I think, uh, kind of not targeted necessarily, but maybe targeted uh, by uh, people in charge because you were somebody coming to this prison and uh, did, they knew you were writing a book, right? They did. How they, did, uh, did, you, did, you, did, you, did you volunteer that information or did they figure that out? Well, they just saw that I was, like, writing on napkins or toilet paper, you know, little bits here or there, and that got them suspicious. And then a letter came in to the prison from a literary agent who was interested in representing me, and, of course, they intercept all the mail and read it. And once that happened, then they sent me to the warehouse to work, uh, I think figuring that that would occupy me and wear me out enough that I wouldn't have much time, energy, or inclination to, uh, to be writing. Mm-hmm. And your notes, how do you say, you, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, you, you hid these in other people's cells, right? I did because they uh, pretty frequently swept my cell, you know, come in and just tear it up and throw everything away. So I had to start hiding my notes in uh, hmm. a different unit. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's hard enough writing a book when you're free, as I'm sure you know. But, um, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. How did you get them out of the prison, though? How did you get these notes? You, you said at the end uh, that they were destroyed in, in Hurricane Sandy, right? They were. Um, I got them out of the prison because another guy who I would uh, I would steal onions and green peppers from the warehouse for him uh, in exchange for him storing my notes and then sending them to his brother on the outside. Mm. And he would send them to his brother who would then send them to a friend of mine uh, who began to transcribe them. Oh, my gosh. Um... And the book came out, ended up coming out uh, in about five years, 
after I left prison mm-hmm. uh, last last fall. It's called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. Of course, not Washington. Uh, and um, ended up, uh, you know, um, did, you know, it, it's not just about my experience in prison. It's a combination, as you know from reading it, a combination of stories about what prison is really like on the inside. Uh, mixed with policy analysis of what exactly is wrong with the American criminal justice system and practical solutions for fixing it. Yeah, it's it's a great read because I feel like I learned a lot, but I also you got a, you got a really engaging story out of it too. So um, it, it works well together. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to read. I, I it feels weird to say that about a book about prison, but I, I did I, I did enjoy it quite a lot. Um, so especially saying especially saying that to the guy who was in there. But you have a very helpful chapter in the book about surviving prison, which I thought was was very interesting um, because there was a book and then movie. I've seen the movie. I've not read the book called Let's Go to Prison, but apparently the the book was a very straightforward uh, guy who went to prison, and this is how you can get along. And the movie was not of course, but, um, the movie was funny, but not, you know, I'm sure realistic. Um, so, uh, how did, did you read anything before you went into prison on, on I, how I to survive not. prison? No, you just winged it. Wow. I winged it. Huh. Cause you seem like such a guy that would like prepare, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I just feel like trusted that, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but a lot of ways politics and and most of my life prepared me to survive prison. Yeah, that's you know, that's I, another thing I was going to say. You had a lot of natural advantages. I felt like going into prison that I think served you you very well. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, um, I can play basketball mm-hmm. and had played played and coached my whole life, and that helped a lot. You know, it's a little bit of fish out of water. You know, being a uh, a former politician, a political science professor, uh, and, you know, a middle-class white guy. Um, but I uh, haven't played basketball my whole life. That helped me kind of get to know people and, and earn people's trust that I was, you know, a regular guy. Um, it also helped that people had read in the newspaper that I hadn't worn a wire on anyone else. Right. Because, though, other than a pedophile, the worst thing to be in prison is a snitch. Mm-hmm. So the fact that my best friend had, had worn a wire and I had not um, put me kind of in good stead, you know, with right. coming in. Um, so those are a couple of things that, uh, that helped me. And I think generally speaking, being in politics, you got to learn how to be around people, especially in a district like mine, which was so diverse. You got to learn how to be around people who are, who are different than you. And uh, that's really what prison is all about is, mm-hmm. is, figuring out ways to blend in. Right. Well, I even noticed in the documentary that your dap was flawless. So, um, (laughs) I I would stumble all over that. Um, but, uh, yeah, the economy of prison is, is fascinating. Uh, I think, uh, and you even did a Ted talk, which, uh, talks about how, and it's kind of also included in the book, of course, uh, how the prison economy is really not all that different from what you'd find in the straight business world. Right. Correct. So, what kind of concepts do you think do you think uh, match over between the two? You know, I heard just about every concept um, relating to capitalism described inside prison uh, in somewhat different terms. But you know, concepts like new product launch or quality control, uh, supply chain management, territorial expansion—all of these concepts and many others were described 
in the parlance of the drug trade, you know, as opposed to the way that you'd learn it at Harvard Business School. But these guys intuitively grasped all these concepts. Uh, the problem is that there was no training at all to help them turn their intuitive grasp of, of these sophisticated business concepts into any legitimate enterprise when they came home. You know, and that's, I think, one of the biggest tragedies of our prison system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you may even mention that, that some of the trades that people apply in, in prison, are they're not allowed legally to participate in on the outside world because they, you can't get a license for, you know, X, Y, or Z if you're, you know, a felon. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a real tyranny because it's like the one thing, it's like the one thing they can do. You know what I mean, and they've and they've had plenty of time to perfect it, and they're probably pretty good at it. They just need you know some some polishing up or whatever. But you can't even you can't even get your foot in the door with some of these laws. Um, ban the box is the same thing, you know. Like you're not even going to get a call back in a lot of places if you have felon on your record, you know. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of states where you know even you know something as simple as hair braiding, mm. you're not allowed to get a hair braiding license if you've got. Uh, felony conviction. So um, there's similar laws in, in states all over the country with all types of professions. And, you know, we send people out of prison uh, oftentimes with, you know, $10, you know, and a bus ticket. And there is really uh, almost no chance that a lot of these guys are going to be able to successfully reassimilate into society. Ninety percent of employers perform criminal background checks. Eighty-five percent of landlords perform criminal background checks. And uh, in both cases, most employers or and landlords will not hire or rent to anyone with a background. And so, if you can't get a job and you can't find a place to live, the odds are that at some point you're going to have to resort to to some type of criminal behavior to make enough money to eat and live. And uh, by putting people coming out of prison behind the eight ball in this country, we ensure a sky-high recidivism rate that costs all of us uh, billions of dollars in tax dollars that fund a revolving door uh, back and forth and and into our prisons. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that you get conservatives on your side, and you even mentioned this a little bit in the book, is that you you actually praised, I think in the end of the book, uh, Rand Paul on this point uh, more than anybody from the Republican side, because he's the one uh, talking about, you know, our prisons are just, are full of, you know, black and brown men, and we're just, uh, this is all wasted talent, you know what I mean? And and it's costing us money. I think that's the way you're going to get Republicans and, and fiscal conservatives and people like that, is that you're going to say, look, I mean, this is costing us all, and guess what, unless you lock everybody up always forever, they have to come out sometime, so don't you want them to be able to rejoin society when they get out? Like, you, they have to live with us. We're all here, you know, so... Exactly, Rob. Yeah. That wasn't really a question, so... <laughs> um, but you're right. I mean, 95% of people who are incarcerated in this country end up coming home. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we... Um, you know, we've got a lot of research out there showing, for example, that every dollar we spend on correctional education programs returns over $5 back to taxpayers in reduced likelihood of recidivism and all the costs that relate to that. And yet, 
you know, in most states, the educational programs are sparse and, and largely ineffective. So uh, doing more to support high-quality educational and vocational training in prisons would have a huge payoff. It's just a hard thing for a lot of politicians to advocate for. And, and uh, that's one of the things I'm focused on now is to try to, you know, help create a climate uh, in St. Louis and in Missouri where policymakers can pay more attention to long-term outcomes uh, resulting from our criminal justice system instead of appealing to the lowest common denominator uh, in the short term. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, now, back to, you know, what, you know, the, the economy of prison, because it, it always amazes me how much, uh, or how, sorry, how little prisoners get paid for the work they do. And, and that wouldn't be such a big deal, except private companies all the time make, you know, f- basically free, effectively free labor out of prisons. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, my uh, my job working in the warehouse, you know, I made about three cents an hour. Um, $5.25 a month uh, to work full-time, moving about 40,000 pounds of food every day in and out of uh, prison in 100-pound bags of rice, beans, flour, sugar. So uh, you don't have any money coming in. I did. I was lucky relative to almost everybody else there, but most guys, especially because of our nation's civil asset forfeiture laws, if they were dealing drugs, their whole bank account gets cleared out, they're broke, and they got to buy their toothbrush, their toothpaste, their deodorant, their soap. Uh, in prison, crappy products at prices marked up 40 or 50% over what you pay on the street. So guys figure out a way to hustle. You know, sometimes legal hustles inside prison, sometimes illegal hustles, trying to find a way to make a buck so they can survive. And that gives rise to a tremendous entrepreneurial ingenuity that I think, you know, we need to do more to try to tap that when people come home. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, it just, it almost makes you feel like it's like legalized slavery in some ways. It's, 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 it's so strange that that it's exempt from every other wage law in, in, in the world that, that you can pay people this little, um, yeah, but but anyway, it's not like you said. It's not even just what you get paid; it's what you have to pay to get anything. And I think you even mentioned where email was like what six bucks an hour to like sit on the computer and compose Correct. email. That so is, it would cost me, would cost me a month's worth of wages to send emails for an hour. I mean, you better get real good at typing, <laughs> like fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's crazy. Um, so at the end of the book, this was another thing that I thought was really interesting. You said we have to reexamine how we deal with nonviolent, and then you even kind of pushed it to uh, maybe even violent offenders because uh, the goal, I think you said, is to reduce the prison population in half uh, by what, I don't remember what year. Um, 2030. 2030, there you go. And that is going to have to, I mean, even if we let all the nonviolent, uh, or as you call it, was it non, 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 the three times? Yeah. yeah. So you let all those people go, and you still don't get to 50%, so you're going to have to um, institute some sort of home detention situation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, technology's gotten good enough that with electronic monitoring systems that we could save billions of dollars every year if we put uh, nonviolent drug offenders in particular, um, but also those people who have hit, uh, violent offenders who have hit so-called criminal menopause. Um, after the age of 45, people who are let out of prison uh, who had committed a violent offense in their teens or early 20s are uh, highly unlikely to ever do it again. In most cases, it was a 
you know, crime committed in the heat of passion and not one that's going to be replicated in a person's uh, uh, older, you know, middle-aged or, or senior citizen years. And so, you know, the fastest growing generational cohort in our prisons in America right now are members, people over 50. And it's a huge expense, particularly their health care costs inside prison cost our nation our nation a fortune. And yet we're barely, we're not really increasing public safety because these people aren't really any more likely than than average citizens to commit a crime. So there's lots of innovative ways that we can uh, either alternatively sentence people on the front end or compassionately release people who are unlikely to commit crimes on the back end without decreasing public safety, and we need to look into all those options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you get the the concept which you mentioned in the book about how um, you know the longer you're going to put people in prison, the more a they're going to have to be criminals to make a living, and b you know just they're going to get be- be better criminals, of course. By who you know, what do you expect to happen? <laughs> you know, so I mean exactly. it's it's yeah it's ridiculous, but. Um, so in the, also in the epilogue of the book, you said that you wanted to start keeping in touch with the guys in prison uh, you talked about in the book. Uh, have you made any progress with that? I have. I have. I am in touch with uh, four or five guys that I did time with and, you know, hoping uh, to encourage them to uh, advocate for some of the reforms that, that I'm advocating for and that uh, Concordance Academy, where I work, is, is going to be pushing over the next several years. Oh, great. Very cool. Um, and these are, you know, how do they feel about their portrayals in the book? Uh, you know, um, I haven't talked to everybody who's in the book, but uh, uh, everybody is just, uh, no one is, is named by their real name in the book. They're named by their nickname, and so uh, I don't think, uh, hopefully nobody is, is too bothered. Right, right. Well, uh, hopefully they don't consider it some sort, sort of informing or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. But you, like you said, you don't use any real names. I have no idea who these people are. Um, so uh, you talk about uh, you know ways to reform the prison system. Uh, but we've talked a little bit about the the influence of money, um, and it, it seems like making prisons profitable, and you know having these private prison companies like uh, is it CCA? Is that the one? Yeah. Um, and uh, Cisco, who does the food, it was always funny. We we had Cisco was the food provider for the summer camp I worked at, and so the, the director would always joke that we were getting prison food, and now I, now I know it's true. So um, they're everywhere, <laughs> Cisco. Uh, but but they're making you know they're making bank you're making a lot of bank uh, as you point that out in the book um you know the the private contractors going in and out of the prison you talk about um how do you remove the uh, profit motive from the prison system in your efforts to reform prison well i mean first thing we should look at uh, for-profit prisons themselves and these contracts that some of them sign with states and counties uh to um, basically house their prisoners or build prisons with a contract stipulating that the county or state must fill 95% of the cells for 20 or 25 or 30 years, uh, those should be abrogated because it provides a, per- a perverse incentive for governments to make sure that a certain number of people are in prison, whether or not there's a sufficient number of people actually committing crimes. So that's the first thing we need to do. And secondly, we need to make sure that uh, 
things like the Obama administration has done to reduce the cost of phone calls in prison, which could run up to $14 a minute uh, before they were regulated last year. We've got to get rid of this profiteering, especially when the profiteering makes it harder for people to stay in touch with their loved ones, which is one of the few things we found can reduce recidivism upon reentry is ensuring that people can be in touch with their family, their friends, their pastor. So we shouldn't let private companies' uh, profit motives get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. Right, but then you also talk about the geo- uh, geographic uh, kind of uh, landscape as far as the uh, where, where you were in Kentucky there, um, and you know the coal mining obviously had dried up. Um, this was the major employer in town. There was really nothing. You said it was was it the second most poor, uh, second poorest. Uh, county in the country or something along those lines? Yeah, one of the poorest. And the New York Times actually, which uh, compiled a misery index, called it the most miserable county in America. My goodness. Um, so anyway, these people, you know... There weren't a lot of, there's not a lot of jobs. Yeah, it, precisely. You know, a, lot of these, a lot of these counties where prisons mm-hmm. are located in this country, most of the manufacturing jobs have left, and they don't really have any credible, uh, you know, sources of new economic development. And that's mm-hmm. why they... They turn to prisons. Well, what do you do for those people who, you know, that guess it's bad that they work at a prison. I'm sure they work a lot of their work somewhere else. I'd like them to work somewhere else. But what do we? How do we get them? You know, above water. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no silver bullet. I, I surely don't have one. But there's a lot of smart people working on rural mm-hmm. economic development. There's a lot of you know seeing the explosion in in renewable energy, the wind farms, the solar farms, uh, solar energy. Um, uh, innovation. There's just a lot of different um, ways that we can add, I think, add value uh, in in the agricultural sector um, that can help in rural areas. You know, in some places, like data centers, you know, go into rural areas if there's caves and uh, with a cool environment, and you can build these huge data centers that, that global multinational uh, telecommunications um, firms can, can uh, you know, can take advantage of. So um, there's you know, as I said, no single solution uh, to the problems of some of these areas, but I can tell you what the solution is not, and that's more prisons. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you there for sure. Um, so have you given your uh, given any thought to making your book into a movie? Um, there are a couple of people in Hollywood that are that are interested in potentially doing so, but uh, we're in conversations with them. Uh, but there's um, nothing yet. So if anyone listening is interested and connected in Hollywood, then uh, you know they should look me up, and uh, I will uh, put them in touch with my agent. That's right. Make them an offer. Um, <laughs> but uh, would you play yourself if the, if that was an option? No, you would not. I would not. Why not? <laughs> You know, because they'd want a big name to play me. I'm not going to draw any any <laughs> Who would you pick to play you then? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, definitely have some people who, uh, some actors who, um, a lot of students of mine over the last several years that I've been teaching have, have told me I, I looked like. But uh, who knows? But I hope that it's something. You know, it would be nice to see the book get, you know, wider distribution. It's done very well as a book, but that doesn't compare to the kind of reach that a television show or a movie can, can have. And so hopefully it will, uh, it will, um, turn into something. Cool. Well, I hope so. I mean, it was definitely, I could see it totally being a movie. Um, so if you hadn't, if all this hadn't happened, say the complaint 
by Russ Carnahan's campaign. It never happened. You'd, you'd go on about your pro- political career. What do you? Where do you think you'd be right now, as far as your your political career? Where would you? Where would you hope? What was your ultimate goal in, in politics? It's it's pretty tough to say, but uh, you know, I mean, I think I was I was definitely interested potentially in running for mayor of St. Louis. Um, and uh, who knows where where things would have gone? But um, I know that uh, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I feel blessed to be able to have come out of that experience whole. Got a beautiful wife and two amazing children, and uh, I got to see a side of society that very few people, frankly, uh, who are highly educated and middle class in this country, ever get to see. And so I'm trying to take that experience and do something good with it, and hopefully, uh, you know, in a few years, I'll, I'll have been able to do so. Yeah, it's almost a shame that that you were the one that had to go down because it it wasn't really like you needed to learn a lesson. You already knew that this was a bad thing that that we were doing mass incarceration or whatever. It almost it almost seems like this should have happened to some like uh, law and order Republican that you know what I mean. Like, like that would have been a much more soul searching experience for them. You know. Like, I, I hear you. <laughs> Um, so, uh, are you allowed to run for an office now that you're, you're there are in ex There's some I could run for, and there are others uh, I'm prohibited from running. Really? But okay. I can tell you, the day I go down to the courthouse to file for office again, I will run into my wife down there filing for di- <laughs> filing for divorce. So. She's she's not with it. Okay. No. <laughs> Um, so, but has being outside of politics now been freeing for you? Because you write very candidly in the book, and and you do come across as very uh, genuine in the documentary too. I don't mean that you were you were being fake at that point, but uh, you know you do have to kind of put on a certain artifice or whatever when you're a politician campaigning and whatnot. But has being out of politics been freeing? Absolutely. You know, I I, I obviously couldn't have written the book uh, or probably wouldn't have written the book quite as candidly as I, as I did if I were still seeking electoral office. So, yeah, anytime you used to be in politics and then you're out and you don't have any ambition to get back in, you can be pretty candid about the process, warts and all. And mm-hmm. that's what I tried to do in the book. Right. Absolutely. Um, but what's the most annoying question that people ask you when they find out you've been to prison? Did you get raped? Right? You even have a part in the end where you talk, where you're at like a dinner party or something, and, and some guy like like manages to insert that in the conversation. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be asked that just anyway, you know what I mean? Like, that's not something that, that people should ask other people in, in polite conversation. But you do admit, you know, you talk about this happens. You know, this is very real. And it's 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 scary how, uh, you know, it's, it's these people that think that this is part of the prison experience, and it should be because this adds to the harshness because apparently in their minds prison is too whatever cushy um, yeah I mean in some people's minds if you do something to get yourself into prison then anything that happens there deserve and uh, that's why I think one reason that we tolerate rape uh, culture inside of prisons as a society and it's unfortunate and very short-sighted because many same people who rape uh, who are raped in prison come outside and in tragic way attempt to reclaim their manhood in the same awful way that it was they perceive it was taken from them on the inside so it's a really myopic Mm -hmm. uh, view of our society to tolerate that absolutely i totally agree um just horrifying but um 
<laughs> Switching to a, a lighter note, uh, it's the second to last night of the Republican National Convention. Uh, I imagine it's been interesting as an ex-politician to watch this election season. Uh, what's it been like uh, for you to see what's been happening? <laughs> you know, it's uh, embarrassing, I think, as an American to watch this convention and uh, mm-hmm. listen to listen to some of the um, appeals to, you know, um, that are, I think, misogynistic, xenophobic, racist, and uh, un- unworthy in many cases of, of this country. So um, it's really sad to me, like, what uh, one component of the Republican Party has turned into uh, or degenerated into. And so that's that's really my feeling more than anything. I'd love to see in America where Republicans and Democrats can get along and aren't constantly vilifying one another. That was how I tried to operate as a senator, and I'd love to see us get back to that as a country. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Everybody's kind of in their own uh, camps now, and it's 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 pretty sad. Um, but on a lighter note, uh, we always talk about music. Um, so uh, what kind of music do you listen to? You know, I listen to a lot. Of, I, I, I listen to everything from kind of 90s kind of alt rock, you know, from when I was in college. Like, I love Weezer. Oh, I love Weezer, uh, too. I've seen them four times. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Huge Weezer fan. Everything from that to, like, rap, uh, especially, like, old school rap to, like, you know, country music. So <laughs> I'm kind of all over the map. Yeah, I agree. It's just, it's not really, like, what kind of music do you like? It's more like, I just, you know, is it good? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll listen to yeah, anything I, that's good. So. Yeah, I played drums in a, in a band, and I played drums in the gospel choir in prison. So uh, I just, I love music, and, and I'm not... I'm not that picky about what it is as long as I got music, uh, you know, kind of in my life. Very cool. Well, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that that you want to get out there? Nope. But I, uh, you know, if people want to find me on Twitter, they can find me at uh, my handle is Jeff Smith Mo, as in Missouri, Jeff Smith M O. And uh, hopefully, I will see people on Twitter. The book is called Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. And uh, if you read it and enjoy it, um, please uh, go on Amazon and and, uh, and write a review. If you read it and you don't like it, then just forget about it. <laughs> Take the day off. Um, but well, thank you so much for uh, for being a guest here, and, and I appreciate you taking the time. And it was a really great book uh, to read. I really mean that. And uh, you know, it was, it was fun talking to you. So, well, fun talking to you too, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on, and take care. Thanks. Have a good night. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.